0: Welcome to the Edify podcast, where our guests share practical wisdom on living our faith in public. I'm Mary Fiorito. Thank you for joining us today. Our guest today on the Edify podcast is Professor Sharif Gerges, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame's Law School and the co-author of the book, What is Marriage? Professor Gerges, welcome. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So terrific to have you. Um, I've been so interested in talking to you because you have um, probably one of the most interesting backgrounds that anyone who can go to law school has, and that is clerking for a Supreme Court justice. So uh, for those who don't understand what that particular job is, can you describe to our audience, what does that mean to be a, a clerk for a Supreme Court justice?
1: Sure. Basically, it means you help the justice with everything they do. Um, so when the briefs come in from the lawyers, you're the first one to read them. You write a memo summarizing the facts and the law, saying, here's how I think it should come out. You talk to the justice before and after the oral argument with the lawyers present their case. You might do a draft of an opinion if the if your boss is, is writing an opinion in that case. And then you go back and forth on the draft. So you help at all stages. It's this really kind of absurd opportunity. I don't know how it helps the justices, but right. uh, it does help. It's really formative for the clerks.
0: Because traditionally, it's it's... That position's held by someone either uh, just out of law school or recently out of law school.
1: Yeah, recently out of law school, they've done some other clerkships for lower court judges, and then there they are.
0: Well, the, the position of law uh, law clerk to a Supreme Court justice became so much better known um, fairly recently when the Dobbs uh, decision was leaked, when the draft of the Dobbs decision was leaked, which of course was authored by um, by Justice Alito, for whom you clerked i I can't imagine what you must have felt like when you heard that news i mean i have i've never been a clerk, but I just thought the, the the first thing I thought was that is the most significant betrayal other than cheating on your spouse. i can't think of any other betrayal that that sinks to that depth
1: yeah, you know i'm not a sentimentalist about the court. I worked there for one year. I feel lucky to do that, but um, you know no other attachment to it, mm-hmm. but I still felt got punched when that happened. And I think it's for the reason you mentioned. It's such a betrayal of trust that I'm sure, I'm certain, that for everybody I clerked with on either side of the so-called aisle, it's not that we would have all thought the costs outweigh the benefits. It just wouldn't have even been an option on the table for us. It would not have occurred to us to do something like that because you're in a position of trust. You know, you're given a ton of access to what's going on in the court. And the flip side of that, obviously, is a lot of responsibility. Right. Uh, To keep it confidential.
0: What did you other than feeling gut punched, as you say, um, did you what were your other reactions? Um,
1: I just immediately thought about how it would affect the court. Right. You know,
0: long term, you mean.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the court operates on trust in a bunch of different ways. Right. So the justices, I, I talked to every justice's clerk that was on a case that I was working on. The Sotomayor clerk on the case, the Ginsburg clerk on the case, as much as, you know, the the Justice Thomas clerk. So again, for
0: non-lawyers, if there's a particular case that's being heard, the justice would entrust you to go and talk to the other clerks about how they were going to rule? Yeah,
1: so on each case, there's a clerk who's assigned to that case for each justice. So I would talk to the other clerks assigned to a case just to know, hey, have I missed anything in the record or any legal arguments? You know, am am I'm drawn to this legal argument. Are there holes in it? Help me figure that out. That kind of collaboration requires a lot of trust. Mm -hmm. Um, Whenever a justice sends an opinion out, a first draft of an opinion out, that the norm is to send it to all of the justices, not just the ones who are going to vote with you on the right. case, and wait till you've you know cleaned that up before sending it out. All of that requires a level of trust that I have no idea. I'm not in the building, but I imagine it's a little bit harder to have now. Right. And that and that affects the quality of the work. It affects you know how much ideas have been sharpened um, by interaction with people who disagree with them. Um, it it's you know if if that's true if those if that kind of trust wears down then the work product is going to suffer for it
0: and there's few other institutions that operate in that um in that kind of way where you have to have complete trust about about something yeah that and needs where it normally be, works i right. mean
1: you know other organs of government are supposed to keep things confidential but we're always hearing of leaks from the executive branch or what have you right. the court until the last few years, it was very rare to hear It was hear one a of the few
0: institutions where you wouldn't have known that. right. I mean, right. things would Even, maybe kind of trickle out. Here and out. there, there'd yeah. be rumors.
1: But, I mean, really big deal cases where everybody's dying to know how it's coming out, and it's nine months between when it's decided and right. when it's released. And, you know, very consistently, you wouldn't hear a word about
0: it. Right. I, I would think the only other case that would have had this much scrutiny would have been Obergefell. And there were, uh, there were rumors...
1: Well, yeah, but partly... there were not.
0: But there was certainly not a, a draft opinion leaked. I no mean, way. The, the, I don't think
1: that's ever happened.
0: Yeah, the, yeah, right. In the whole history of the court, it's one thing you uh, to, to, to whisper something, but right. it's another thing altogether to leak an entire opinion which of course triggered tremendous social unrest and 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 tremendous dangers for the justices themselves and the person who you know has been now charged with attempting to kill justice Kavanaugh um seemed had the the means to do so and oh he
1: came the motive, he came with the weapons prepared. he came with the tape he came with the zip ties everything
0: yeah so, I mean, really terrifying. And, you know, and when it extends then into the justices' families, and there's a number of the justices that have young children, right. you know, that, you know, you and I are both parents, and that's where you think, is is this job worth it? Uh yeah. You know, um, and the sacrifice that the justices make for, you know, the country in that regard. Um, and that could have happened.
1: And that could have happened. Yeah, and if it had happened. and Because and the justice there was, has to
0: be alive the day the decision is That's right. Is so if it had down.
1: happened and there were no other switches of votes, and if we assume that it was five at, at the beginning as reported when the leak happened, then they would have changed that outcome. So the incentive to do that, you know, not for the rank and file pro-choicer, but for, for crazy people who exist on the fringes on both sides. Right. Would have been really intense,
0: and I mean, not since you know slavery have we seen, and segregation have we seen such high tensions. I think around a case, even with Obergefell, I don't think there were no
1: way, not even close.
0: Yeah, the the societal tensions. Um, Well, I'm asking you to speculate here, but what you what could have been the motivation to to leak an entire draft opinion? I mean.
1: Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, some people thought, "Oh, well, it would be a way to uh, try to change the outcome," but then others thought it seems like a way of cementing the outcome. No justice is going to want to look like they they switch. But then I can't imagine somebody who was happy with the direction of the case thinking, "Oh, the best thing to do right now is drop a bomb in the middle of the whole thing." So my guess is that it wasn't a rational calculation. It was Mm -hmm. a kind of expression of outrage. Mm -hmm. And that that was it was really an attempt to show the court in a state of undress, basically, Mm -hmm. you know, to to pull back the curtain and say, look at the the sausage being made. You're not seeing many steps of it, but you're seeing a draft. And then now if they change it in any way, we're going to know that they changed it. We'll think they did it in response to this tweet or whatever. Um, So it was an attempt to embarrass the court and to Mm -hmm. undermine it and to make it look illegitimate.
0: So where, where were you when Dobbs came down? What was your first? I mean, obviously the, the leak took away a lot of the joy, I think we might've felt. Um, right. But where were you?
1: I was in my office, clicking refresh, hoping that that was the <laughs> I morning. I blog,
0: right? Right, yep. uh,
1: hoping that that was the morning the PDF would drop. Um, it was surreal. It was really yeah. bizarre. You know, I'm 36, my whole life, Roe has been the law of the land. It was the law of the land right. for 15 years before right. that almost and to think that it's it doesn't exist anymore i mean it's uh, it's an overturned precedent
0: so you have worked on not only abortion but probably if there's any other issue that is more sort of electrifying i guess emotionally it would be the redefinition of marriage and in fact you very early on i think um you know uh, wrote, wrote co-wrote the book rather what is marriage um which i imagine kind of put a a mark on you in some ways right like how did you decide you must have known that going into it i guess is my question you must have known if i say this publicly this is going to make this is going to mean there's going to be doors closed to me in my career
1: yeah so i was in my early 20s so it wasn't a rational choice exactly but i was <laughs> um i i guess i was aware of that yeah. uh, but i was motivated i wasn't Ambitious and self conscious enough at that stage to be super worried about that. Mm-hmm. I was just, I wasn't even particularly interested in the debate to begin with, to mm-hmm. be honest. What happened is that the debate was being conducted in such a revolting way to me, where one side's argument was that we have all of reason and truth and justice and the enlightenment on our side, and the other side is just the forces of darkness and ignorance. And I thought, no, actually, this is a much harder issue than um, the first side is letting on there are deep tensions and contradictions in that side's view and i also didn't want to be represented if i have you know the more conservative view on this i didn't want to be represented by the most shrill voices on that side Mm -hmm. of the debate either including some who say and think things i deeply disagree with and and think are harmful so i just thought um I, the other thing that ha- kept happening is that my friends kept asking me, mm-hmm. how could you possibly believe this view? And I would keep explaining myself and writing emails and going out for drinks to explain. And I thought it would be really nice to have like one essay that I could send And they could just
0: hand it to them. I right? could hand
1: it to them. I could say, I'm happy to talk about this, but this is where we start. And that's, that's actually how um, the, what became the book started. I, I was writing a document for exactly that purpose. Mm-hmm. It became... Uh, I, I kind of didn't do anything with it for a while, then worked with uh, Professor George and Ryan Anderson on it, became an article. And then that article, after a lot of interactions, became a book.
0: And I remember when someone you know, gave me that for the first time and reading it and thinking, you know, this is what I've been looking for to help articulate right again to because it, it, the only other argument you were hearing on the other side is you know you're against equal rights and why do you care who people love and you know just to be able to, to sort of formulate this you know why the government even got involved in marriage in the first place it wasn't because it really cared about who you love at all it was because children because marriage is a conjugal union children could result and and therefore, you need to legally tie those children to their mostly to their biological fathers.
1: That's right. Yeah, and, and what you're saying reflects the fact that it's not just a religious view, which is another thing that emerged in the debate. Um, it's it, it couldn't be just a Christian view or 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 what have you. Partly because it spans the world's religions, mm-hmm. and it also spans right. the world's cultures. And it was also articulated something like the kind of theory we give. So not just the top line, it's a man and a woman, but the kind of account of why that's true right. is something that you find in ancient Greek and Roman thinkers who had no connection to Judaism right. or Christianity. St. Paul didn't write letters to their hometown. They don't have never <laughs> met a Hebrew prophet, right. um, but they came to the same view by reason. So right. it can't just be So it's part a of the natural law, what would call the natural view. law,
0: Exactly. Yeah. Well, have you felt just in, in terms of your own um, your personal prayer life, your the way your has your faith been tested through any of this? Because you really have staked out um, very public, uh, very well articulated, but still very public positions on on both abortion and on the redefinition of marriage. Um, how, how does that you know feel to you, just as a as a lawyer who is you know out in a profession where I would think. Probably most of your colleagues in in the law, as law professors, would probably not agree with you. Yeah. What, what's that like for you? You know, just personally.
1: Sure. So um, I like to be liked. It's a it's a it vice. Doesn't. Right. But it, yeah. It can be a vice. It's probably a vice in me. But um, so it's been a test of that, of the ability to mortify that desire. I love hanging out with people. I love being on very friendly terms with people. Mm -hmm. And I take it for granted that any given person I run into could be a friend. And for a lot of people, this is just a non-negotiable obstacle to Mm -hmm. that. Um, It it definitely, I'm sure, has closed some professional doors, many professional doors, but it it also opened some. I think Mm -hmm. I got opportunities Professionally, that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten because I was the one person or the one person who had co-authored anything right. giving a kind of academic account of this sort of issue. Um, and I think it was good for me. I'm glad that it happened at a stage where I was not calculating and ambitious because it was freeing. It right. it, you know, you've been tied to the mast. Now all of your New friendships and professional relationships are built on a foundation of transparency right. and clarity, like this is who I am um, i I love to talk and befriend people I disagree with, but um, i'm not gonna, i don't have to hide anything that I think. I got a lot of people's exact opinions of it on Facebook, which was a big thing right. at the time um, but it's good I think it's a great exercise to be forced to and all of us need this in different contexts to be forced to be able to stand your ground and say, you know, yeah. this is this is something I've thought deeply about. I'm very open to counter arguments. I'm, I'm more after the truth than I am after sticking to my own views. But it is where I stand right now. And I'm willing to take a hit for it.
0: Well, I saw that Justice Amy Coney Barrett is um, has apparently authored a book and a number of the, the reviewers and things that work with this particular publishing company have written a letter to the publisher saying they shouldn't publish the book. We're for f- free speech, except just not this, not this speech. And I just think of, my goodness, she is a justice of the Supreme Court. And I, I don't understand how, on the one hand, anyone could say they're for free speech, but then take a book by a Supreme Court justice and say it shouldn't even be published. And that seems to me um, and you may have had these kind of encounters with your book as well that people are afraid of the arguments because they're so good. I mean the way you I mean it's not a huge book it's not a tome you know it's a it's a very well done book but it lays everything out so clearly and articulately. Did you have any of those kind of experiences where um, bookstores wouldn't sell it for example, or people didn't want to have you come and talk or
1: Yeah, there's definitely so on the last point people do sometimes think, oh it's it's an injustice. to the the LGBT community to even bring somebody in to debate this issue. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when a university or some chapter, student chapter at a university would want me to come in and debate somebody, they wouldn't be able to find an opponent because everybody thought they'd be platforming or dignifying a view that it's not worth discussing. It would be like bringing somebody in to debate the merits of slavery or something. So um, that happens a lot. I think that you're right, that that's a kind of departure from an old school liberal view. Um, which is still had by some mostly older people who are progressive in terms of their substantive views about these policy issues, but think that there's a lot of value mm-hmm. to having all arguments at the table, like let's have it out. Right. Um, we're not committing an injustice by getting at the to the heart of a matter, even if we deeply disagree with the view on the other side. And I think that's a kind of uh, diminishing presence in our culture. And, and
0: that's what I think one of the saddest things about this cancel culture is that colleges used to be, you know, homes for debate. And I, I regularly debated Kitty Colbert, who argued Planned Parenthood versus Casey before the court. In fact, I may have met you because I debated her at Princeton, actually, yeah. back when, probably when you were a student. And um and people were civil, and not to say that you wouldn't get some very pointed remarks, but there was no, there was no violence, there was no, and I thought that that really worked to, Quell tensions to let everybody have their say and to hear, you know, the arguments on both sides and to and very importantly allow people to ask you hard questions. Sometimes, um, what what did you think about? I think I, I know the answer to this question, but this this recent um, experience uh, at was it at Yale's law school where so much of the student population got up and walked out of a particular talk. I just i was so discouraged by that because i thought if you are supposed to be lawyers i remember the first thing they told us you have to you've got to argue the, your your opponent's side right. for this particular that right. you, you you that's how we were trained and now we're not even going to listen to what the opponent has to say
1: yeah the dean of my law school says that if you're afraid of arguments you dislike that's like a doctor and, and you're a lawyer that's like a doctor being afraid of blood or something mm-hmm. like that's right. this is what you work with and that's how our adversarial justice system works. Right.
0: Um,
1: so, I, yeah, I think that's because really. You're
0: a graduate of Yale as well.
1: I am a graduate of, of Yale, Yale Law School. Yeah. yeah. So, it, so for better or worse, it's um, you know, there's a lot of good at Yale, but I think that is a, a, a serious problem with the culture there, mm-hmm. and it's not just at Yale.
0: That's a very discouraging thing to see come out of the, the, the elite law schools, and uh, whether it's that or the white coat ceremony at the University of Michigan, because the, the professor, the medical professor and doctor who was speaking. Is known for being pro-life. A number of students got up and walked out of the white coat ceremony. I thought, what you know, you get what? What if someone you know you, you find offensive is brought into an emergency room and you're there? You're not going to treat them. I mean, you know, I, I, it made me think of when President Reagan was shot and this the, the, allegedly. Um, uh, when he was just before he was going into surgery, he looked up at the doctor and said, I hope you're all Republicans. And the doctor replied to him, Mr. President, today we're all Republicans. Yeah. And I mean, what you know, you had those beautiful moments, these unifying moments that we used to have are are so few and far between now. I find that just, just as a Catholic, I find that so distressing.
1: It is. and And I think we need to, you know, in our own little corner of the world, do what we can to overcome that. So I had friends in grad school, for example, some of whom stopped talking to me because of my views. But some of them who felt equally strongly that I was wrong and that the the view is deeply harmful became some of my closest friends because they saw debate and discussion of those things as opportunities, not threats. They thought that we can both get something we both want, Mm -hmm. which is a deeper understanding of this area, hopefully progress towards truth and knowledge Mm -hmm. if we debate even if we disagree on it on the substance at the beginning and for that matter at the end so there is still a common project that we both share and we can build a friendship around it Mm -hmm. it's not something to work around um and and you know those some of those are my deepest and richest friendships
0: well one of the things you discuss in your edify video is the damage that no fault divorce has done can you Expound on that a little bit more. I mean, because most people say, you know, if two people, they fall out of love and they get divorced. What does it matter to you?
1: Yeah. So the, the main reason that every law, every society that we're aware of in history has regulated marriage is to try to encourage people to stay together when they're in the kind of relationship that might make kids mm-hmm. uh, because of the enormous damage for kids who had no say in the matter and also for society when kids aren't reared um, by they're their,
0: their, their the, mother and father, right? Yeah. So,
1: um, so to say that you know we shouldn't try to inc- no fault divorce is basically a way of saying we are no longer trying to put any pressure on you to stay together. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to give a justification for splitting up. That's mm-hmm. effectively what it means in practice. That's certainly how it's carried out. It's a lot easier to get out of a marriage contract than it is to get out of any other contract. Mm-hmm. So, I think that that's. Um, that's really bad because of all the things that we were trying to avoid by regulating marriage in the, in the first, first place, place right. right? I mean, and the, the broken hearts, the broken homes. Um, and it's, and, and it's, this isn't a point that's callous to the difficulties of marriage, by the way. There are lots of studies that suggest that couples who have serious difficulties But decide to stay together five years later in the over in the majority of cases are very happy so it could be even for the couple's own good in fact when i invite people to my wedding part of what i'm doing is inviting them to put pressure on me to stay together the reason they're watching me exchange vows with my wife and why it's not just something we're doing solo Mm -hmm. is so that the the, the idea is the community has an interest in this Mm -hmm. it's invested in this and we as well as the community have an interest in the community encouraging us to stay together. We do that partly through culture and partly through law and no-fault divorce is a direct repudiation of
0: that. Right, it is. And of course, you know, as Catholics, we look at it as an, in a sacramental way. In the diocese where I live, there's a we always have a golden wedding anniversary mass every year for people who've been married 50 years. And, you know, the media like to show up at that and they always ask, you know, what's your advice for it? And I just remember one, man saying, you know, we we had some rough years. And he didn't say, like, we had some rough days, we had some rough moments, we had some rough years. There were years, like, we didn't speak to each other, you know, except, on, and you just think, but you get out on the other side of that, and they've been together 50 years, and, you know, um, you, when you think about it in contractual language, of course, not just sacramental language, but contractual language, like, you know, this is the person you're signing up to do this with.
1: That's the point of a commitment. I mean, if, if this other person was, going to always spontaneously be the person you most want to be with you don't need a commitment because you're just going to spontaneously be with them anyway the commit the whole point of a commitment is to kick in when you would otherwise want to do something else when you would want to leave and so it's the the difficulties are not they're they're part of the package deal and they're if we think commitments are valuable we think sticking it out through difficulties is valuable because otherwise there's no reason
0: well you know as as we wrap up here um we're seeing fewer and fewer um, young people, people in their 20s and 30s, marrying now, cohabitation, you know, uh, really significantly soaring. Um, What would you say to college students, graduate students, you know, who are thinking maybe about getting married or putting it off or et cetera, et cetera, um, what, what would you say to them? What advice would you give them about what marriage means, not just to them personally, but also to society?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, as I was saying earlier, I think all of society has an interest in healthy marriages because you are, God willing, in the ideal case, you are doing something that society absolutely needs and that no one but you can do, Mm -hmm. which is to care for this, this completely vulnerable, innocent, precious, and totally helpless new human life, which without your help, will do much worse and will be less capable of contributing to others and will, be, will require more help from others. And the flip side of that is that you're doing a real contribution to the whole community
0: mm-hmm.
1: by being really good parents to these particular individuals. Mm-hmm.
0: Because we know that the benefits for children who grow up in intact homes sociologically and emotionally and um, exactly. even in terms of like how much income they go on to make, that sort of thing, they're all they they score in every every metric they score higher.
1: Yeah, and my tip on on delaying marriage would be I think a lot of people, you know, people talk about sociologists talk about a capstone conception of marriage right. where right. it's the thing you do when you've already fully formed yourself as an individual, you know, you've gotten your graduate degree, you've gotten the job you want to keep for life and so on. And I think that's a mistake. I mm-hmm. think it's it's best to think of marriage as an adventure that you go through together, which means an adventure, which means something that you don't see all of the details of in advance. Oh,
0: thank God that you don't, because... You
1: right, know, you wouldn't do it. Nobody yeah, would get married. I just,
0: right. God just reveals things to you and gives you the grace for moments you never thought you could get through.
1: Right. And those moments are going to be moments that form the kind of person you are with this other person, right. rather than being fully formed and then figuring out, eh, on balance, do the costs... Uh, are the costs outweighed by the benefits yeah. of being together. That's yeah. a totally and, different
0: model. And there's little moments, you know, I, I remember one of my daughters was had a health condition that was diagnosed in utero and had to be in emergency delivery. And, um, you know, you, you, it was one of those moments where, you know, I felt like I... God gave me the confirmation I married the right person because my husband went to take my other children to my in-laws and, you know, came back so he would be there for the delivery, which had to happen right away. And he walked in, I'm like, where, you know, where were you? And he pulled something out. He said, I stopped and got holy water <laughs> and he said, I have to baptize the baby. And you just think, you know, those are the kind of moments when I thought, you know, I married the right man. I married a man who understands my heart and what would have been important to me, you know? So, um, well, Professor Gerges, thank you so much for, thank you for everything you do not just for the church and for your students, but for society, because you are making such tremendous contributions and you're only 36 years old and you've got a long way to go. So I can't wait to see what, what you have coming down the road.
1: That's it's very been common. a
0: joy having you on the Edify podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To make it easier for you to listen to future Edify podcast episodes, please make sure you subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.